And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, everyone. I'm Danny Kelly, and this is the View from the Lane, the Athletic's Tottenham Hotspur podcast. I'm joined today by the Athletics' Charlie Eccleshare and James Moore. Thrilled to the bits, I'm sure. Absolutely glowing following Tottenham's 2-1 comeback win over Leeds on Sunday evening. And a second-half performance where it felt like the Conti era might just have begun. Before we get into that, though, wasting our time on analysing the match, let's dive into um, the most extraordinary thing that happened yesterday. And Jeff Shrees of Sky Television showed before the game, I have to describe this in slight detail because not everyone will have seen it, um, but I put some pictures of the Spurs ground staff. They're on their knees at the side of the pitch, appearing to groom with, between their fingers and their thumbs tiny bits of grass down that little border where the pitch ends and the technical area starts. Um, does anybody have a clue? Charlie and James, welcome, of course. Um, uh, what, what the hell they were doing? And is this part of the Conti thing, or is this something they've been doing behind our back for years? Well, I think it's all part of the Conte uh, micromanaging attention to detail that you know we're told is a staple of, of how he operates. And I'm sure in the long read, when either... Tottenham win something and we try and understand how we'll say that it was things like this this refusal to compromise that heralded a new era and led to their FA Cup triumph or if he's sacked in six months it will be it, he did just micromanage too much He the, the players couldn't breathe even the sidelines he had to have a say on so um, yeah I look forward to post-rationalising which one of those two it is Do, do we really think it was actually Conte that demanded that be done? Because I, I just can't, I just can't see that on like a match day, you know, an hour before the game, your first home Premier League match, you know, a, a, and a game Spurs really needed to win, that he would be looking at the sidelines of the pitch and just thinking, oh, there's a few errant strands of grass there, maybe you know, can you get rid of those? Surely he doesn't care. From what I've been told, it really, really wouldn't surprise me. Like from his previous jobs, it sounds like he is so on top of the details, so obsessed with all of these tiny things, would have it instead. I mean, there was something else, um, which I'm sure was new as well, was that the players, right up until the final moment, were wearing their kind of, um, uh, their top, you know, those like thin mm -hmm. jumper stash. An anthem they jackets, I believe they're called. Anthem jackets. Wow. I believe that's what they're called. Is that right? Wow. I um, believe so. I suspect they're available in the club shop for Christmas as well. If you, I'm sure they are for a lot of money. They are very nice, I have to say. Anyway, but they were wearing them to the very last moment before kickoff, and then handed them to a member of Conte staff who hastily was like, whack, is shoving them into a bag. And I thought, I bet that's to do with some keeping players at the optimal, absolute optimal temperature until the microsecond. Oh, you mean like in the, before the Formula One, where they're warming up the tires with hair dryers? 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hair, F- Formula One and marathon runners—it's all the same sort of thing where they—it's literally split seconds that they have to be injected with the right, uh, you know, gels careful, or careful power where you're going with the word injected yeah. and marathon yeah. runners. Just, yeah, 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 just, yeah, just I realized thought. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's why I'm very quick to say what I'm saying. Injected with your your power aids, your your energy gels, or in the case of a car petrol or whatever they okay well I, I i must say i cannot see daniel levy sanctioning um uh, further spending on people to pick at individual blades of grass but maybe that's what he's been promised and we'll see which takes us on to the first half um i, I don't mind opening the bidding here i stared at the television um and going this is exactly the same as it's been for the past Best part of 18 months, first under Mourinho. You thought, you thought it was that Then good. under Nuno. And um, I thought, can nobody in a white shirt find a simple pass to another person in a white shirt? And by half an hour in, I was thinking, I don't even care if the person in the white shirt they're passing to is on the pitch. If they could find a member of the audience, a member of the crowd who's wearing a white shirt, which showed that the, the, the concept had got to them. They were, I'll, I'll, leave it, I'll leave it with you, James. You, you, you're a Spurs fan. They were terrible, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, I really did think it was like a sort of sub-Nuno level performance in the first half. It was really, really poor. And I suppose, you know, the, the formation switch, uh, and I know they played it in the previous couple of games before the international break, I suppose in a way that's some mitigation. You, you're putting winks into the middle of the team, um, you know, for the first time in a while in a new system. And I guess, you know, you kind of understand why they might be a bit ring rusty, but it really was just kind of unacceptably bad. As you say, the passing was really, really off. I think the issue of lacking a playmaker was didn't even come into play, did it? Because they couldn't get the ball anywhere near like the Leeds penalty area. It, it wasn't that you know Leeds were sat deep and Spurs were knocking the ball side to side and able to create anything. They just couldn't even get the ball up the pitch. They were really, really bad. I mean, actually, defensively, I thought. Yeah, I mean, they could have probably defended a bit better for the goal, uh, particularly Royale, who uh, having improved in the last three games, three or four games, had a bit of a stinker, didn't he? But actually, at centre-back, I thought they did quite well. I thought Davis played pretty well. Dare, dare I um, say they thought Dyer was good? Dyer as well. Yeah, I mean, actually, I think Dyer's probably had quite a good yeah. season. I think on the you know on the, on the balance of things, he's probably been one of Spurs' better players, which which maybe says it all. Uh, but yeah, they were so bad. And I, I had no optimism at that point that, that they were going to come back, which I suppose is a testament to Conte, really, that he was able to kind of G those players up. And without like making loads of substitutions, it wasn't substitutions that changed the game. Um, which I think is a thing we're going to come on to in a second. Um, w- w- are we being too harsh here? Are we are we viewing this through navy blue spectacles, Charlie? No, I mean, the first half was really, really bad. Leeds were so on top, fully deserved to go in ahead. Uh, and they were good, Leeds. Let's, let's, yeah, let's yeah, yeah, they were really the good. Yeah, Leeds and, were good. And I think what was probably dispiriting was that it was an injury-ravaged Leeds team who came into the game fourth from bottom. And I'm sure, I mean, certainly the chatter in the press box before was once we saw the team news out and, you know, given guys like Bamford were already out to then lose Rafinha I think everyone was thinking oh, that that's probably Leeds uh, Leeds's chance is gone so to see them come out and play so well and Spurs look so flat uh, w- was disheartening and surprising I mean the only thing I'd say was different I I felt reasonably confident they'd be able to turn it around just because I thought there's no way they can come out and be that bad again and there's no way Conte won't rip into them at half time and there has to be some sort of reaction but yeah the first half alone was was as bad as they've been all season really 
I mean, I, I, I do sometimes feel a bit sorry for... God, these are words you don't hear out my mouth very often. A bit sorry for modern professional footballers. There were times I saw Tanganga do it, I saw Winks do it, where the they walk a tightrope, don't they? Um, they get the ball, there is no pass forward available to them, or at least they can't see one, or they're not capable of making it, and I think that may be uh, Tanganga's problem. And so they turn backwards and pass it backwards. You can hear the crowd. Mm. There's a sort of sub, subconscious, <clears throat> like a low, a low lowing, if that's the correct phrase, um, from the crowd. Of course, the manager wants them to not lose possession, but they also want, and I'm sure Conte wants, them to pass the ball forward. And when it goes a bit sideways, there's no... I don't think there's a crowd in the country that does the the, the the lowing quite as good as the Spurs. Now that it can get 62,000 people lowing all together when the ball goes backwards. I, I'm as guilty of that as anyone. Yeah. But actually against a team like Leeds and the way they press and the way they push up the pitch, actually there is logic to kind of knocking the ball back and hoping to kind of catch them out. And I think that was a tactical thing and it didn't always look great. But I think the idea was to draw Leeds forward and then ping the ball over the top, right, to Kane. And Kane did quite a good job of, like, holding off a defender and knocking the ball off to someone else, which, you know, may not be really what we want to see Harry Kane doing in a match. But he did reasonably well to, like, helping Spurs progress the ball up the pitch. Also, that did spill over, Danny. I mean, you're, you're saying, yeah, a lot of the time it was a kind of low hum, but the, the, the half finished, basically, with Davis going back to Dyer, Dyer going back to Lloris, and there was a lot of frustration there and then. Yeah, there was. The booze at half time. Which, can I say as well, booze at half time happens so frequently... And it's made out to be this kind of touchstone moment. It's really not that big a deal, unfortunately. I mean, you know, maybe that says a lot about the entitlement of modern football fans. But most big six and inverted commas teams, if they're losing a game at half time and haven't played well, there will be booze. It's not that noteworthy. Yeah, it, it, it didn't used to happen back in in, in the day. Um, but that's because people weren't paying 70 quid for the yeah. privilege. The, the relationship between fans and players has changed entirely. Um, the, the example I always give is somebody who can't um, get the ball past the near post with a corner. Um, it used to be an entirely forgivable, indeed, an enjoyable part of the game. I remember a man called Terry Naylor playing for Spurs back in the, in the 19, early 1970s. Terry was a good fighter and a pretty bad footballer, <laughs> and he couldn't take a corner to save his life. But we just thought it was very funny. But once you realise somebody's getting 70 or 80 grand a week, you expect them to be able to beat the first man with a corner. Everything's changed. Let me ask you a question before I get on to the critical thing of how long Spurs went without a shot on target. And I'm going to double down on this in a minute. Um, do you think it's even Conte, and therefore by definition the players, were taken aback because Bielsa, God bless him and how much I love him, played Calvin Phillips in a, <laughs> as a centre-half? Well, I mean, that shouldn't, that shouldn't massively affect the way Spurs wanted to play. I think it's more just a testament to the fact that Bielsa's teams are so well-coached and well-drilled that even... I mean, I, I can't speak highly enough of Bielsa. He is, what he's done with a team yeah. of essentially championship-level players to get them to play the way they do. Like that game, the back end of last season, when they beat Spurs 3-1, the football they played was just jaw-dropping. And you're like, these are championship players. How has he done this? And then, again, yesterday, you've got... That is a, you know an injury-ravaged team. And you've got someone like Phillips dropping in and playing centre-back. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think that should be something you take advantage of. They should be the ones that look uncertain with that change around. And it's not as if Phillips would have had... They haven't had weeks on the training ground to do that because they've had players away on international duty as well. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that because actually walking away from the game, that in a way that was one of the positives I took because you watch Leeds 
And you're right, you know, they had Rafinha Bamford, who is like crucial to the way they play with and without the ball. Important players missing at both ends of the pitch. Uh, and yet they still played like Leeds. You mm. could, they, they were still recognisably Leeds. It was still recognisably Bielsa's team. Regardless of who's played for Spurs, if every single player's been fit and you've kind of, even in the moments you've been able to predict the starting 11 in the last like three or three and a half years, Spurs haven't had that identity. And I think bringing Conte in, I think one of the things that hopefully we're going to get is a sense that, uh, like a recognisable quality to the team. Like certain things that they're going to do, certain you know you're you're going to be able to tell the kind of build up they're going to try and they're going to try and string together. You're going to tell what they're going to do with and without the ball, and that hasn't really been a thing with Spurs bar that kind of couple of months in Mourinho where they were quite good at counter attacking, and then that kind of fell away. But other than that, there just hasn't really been a, a rec- ma- no. many recognisable qualities to Spurs, the Spurs team in the last two or three years, and that's kind of I just kind of made me think actually maybe that is one of the things we're going to get, and hopefully that happens quite quickly because it is. I, when things are going badly, what players really need is like that sense of being able to kind of fall back on a plan, and that's that is Spurs just haven't been able to do that in the last two or three seasons, and I just that's been one of the big problems that when things have turned, and you know we saw that halfway through last season when you know we had a couple of late goals go against them, and suddenly they lost all confidence, and then they've gone from top of the league to seventh, eighth, ninth really quickly because there's just no kind of fullback plan. No, no, and that's that. You're absolutely right. A pattern of play is what Conte has to try and impose immediately. And as you right say, leads. Um, that is his thing, isn't it? As well, that's what he will do. They will know the passes they make, where they move after they've made the pass, who's going to give them the ball in each position and whatever else, where everyone else in the pitch is going to be. And that's what they haven't had for two or three years. I mean, and, and without getting too nerdy, what, on this podcast, without getting too nerdy, I'm not so sure that the Phillips thing wasn't a problem for Spurs because I cannot believe that if he was playing in his normal position, and of course, in theory, it weakens two position at least. You've got somebody playing centre-half, not mm. used to it, and their best midfield. But I don't believe Spurs would have laid off Calvin Phillips in the way they did Adam Forshaw, allowing, allowing Adam Forshaw, God bless him, to look like Andrea Perlo for 45 <laughs> minutes of the game. They would, just wouldn't have done because of the reputation Phillips has of, of hitting a decent 30-yard pass. But they let him do it from centre-back and they let Forshaw run the game. Very, very interesting. But I, but I think as well, just to James's, sorry, Danny, just to James's point on that it's been so long since they've had that uh, those automatisms and a manager who they have this discernible style. Ooh, well it's done all- with auto- automatisms is a word. Well done. <laughs> and, and it does make a big difference because like James says, you can fall back on things when even if you're not, full, you know, it's that whole cliched thing of trust the process, which I know is much maligned, but... You know that does give you. There's kind of a basis um, that you always have, even if you're not, even if the results aren't going so well. But also, what they haven't really had since those peak Pochettino days is a coach like Bielsa who just makes a lot of players a lot better. And that's the thing. And I think Jurgen Klopp is probably the benchmark here for what he's done at Liverpool because Conte, yes, he'll be backed in the transfer market, but he's not going to go and obliterate City and Chelsea. We know that. If he if he's going to improve this Spurs team. It's going to be, yes, some shrewd additions, but it's also by turning average players into good ones and good ones into very good ones. And I have to say, I think already the improvement of someone like Ben Davis, who's much maligned, I thought played well, uh, has played well in the first few games. I thought Lucas Moura yesterday in the second half came out and was really, really good. And those Arguably the... Spurs' best player, yeah. Moura, I, I mean, thought. he set up a goal, three key passes, and his attitude was spot on, really kind of led the fight. Again, that's an intangible thing, but he did. His attitude was spot on after a pretty ropey first half and and the point is that you know Spurs fans might think Lucas Mora you know who's why are we relying on Lucas Mora but 
who thought that Jeannie Wijnaldum was going to turn into this world-beating Champions League Andy winner? Robertson. Or Andy Robertson. They were both signed from relegated clubs. That's what you have to do. You have to improve players and give them a structure. And and really, and Spurs had that under Pochettino. Same thing. He turned players who other who no one else would have cared about Spurs signing into really, really good players who could reach the Champions League final. You've done well not to mention Victor Moses again. Well, I know. I, I said in my uh, article yesterday, I'm legally obliged at this point to mention Victor Moses at Chelsea. Well, thank you for bringing him up. I mean, we, we've done the Moses moment. We can move on. Let's let's come back to something. Uh, during the course of the game, um, I pointed out um, uh, when we went past the 13th, 14th minute that um, Spurs' um, run of uh, minutes without having a shot on target had now reached the longest ever film to win an Oscar um, Gone with the Wind and then we were gone off into some people were responding very nicely on as the minutes ticked by uh, on Twitter saying oh goodness if we listen to the Beatles albums as we talked about we're actually up to Sergeant Pepper now <laughs> um, and and so I mean that, that's two thirds of the way through the Beatles career where yeah. we're now knocking these things down then I got a very very churlish uh, tweet from somebody saying will you please stop doing this I listened to your podcast and what is this point this comparison of the minutes that Spurs have gone without having a shot at goal to other cultural artefacts have nothing to do with football. And at first I thought, ah, oh, he's not enjoying it. Then I noticed it's from a rival podcast. Mate, don't be doing that. Now I have <laughs> now you've forced me to drive your podcast into the sea. I won't mention its name because that's the first part of driving it into the that's sea. That's our team but talk right there, isn't it? Before you, yeah, you, you, you posted this <laughs> up on the dressing room. I nailed it on the door, dressing room door, of course I did. And the two, you and your mate will be stood there with your knees covered in seawater going, I should never have said that to Danny. That, you know what he's like. That's, that's not any part of the plan. So, I mean, does anyone have a record? Charlie, when did we have the first shot uh, on target? It was 200, they went 272 minutes without a shot on target. Which is more than four and a half hours. I mean, I was saying four and a half of your English hours. Amazing. It became. It went beyond film territory and became sort of marathons and kind of. It was. It was just getting checking. It was just getting less good and less good. But yeah, four Greenpeace, and a half hours. Greenpeace rang me and said they were now measuring it in the recession of glaciers. <laughs> I mean, just incredible. They said that some glacier in Iceland, I'd never heard of it, had gone back fifteen feet in the time since Spurs <laughs> had last had a shot. On target. Uh, just for the record, everybody, um, not since Opta stats began um, has a team gone through six straight halves, halves of play. Um, with, of course, the second half against West Ham, both halves against Manchester United and Everton, the first half against Leeds without having a single shot at goal. And Spurs, I, I love you to, you. The, to the core of my DNA. I salute you for breaking yet another record. They went in at 1-0 down at half-time to the not-lowing, proper booing. Um, as you say, that is no indication of anything these days. Uh, um, afterwards, Reggion, who, who smiled throughout the game, and I thought had a reasonable game, I, I, not quite as headless chicken as I sometimes describe him, he hinted that there had been a tactical change. I didn't see the tactical change, but maybe uh, it was more apparent if you were in the stadium. What was he talking about? I think for what it looked like was that the full-backs were pushed higher up, uh, the wing-backs rather, were pushed higher up, mm. uh, so him and Royale, and Winks and Hoybier stopped playing so deep. That in the first half at times, it felt like they were almost sitting on the centre-backs. And, and there is already an issue, and we've talked about this with playing two defensive midfielders as well as a back three, uh, whether that's slight overkill. 
but it looked like they were they they'd moved up, taking a bit of a gamble, but I think slightly relying on the fact that Leeds were going to run out of puff and would carry less of a threat on the counter, and that is what happened. And defensively, they got ragged as well. And also, I think as much as Phillips may have slightly disorientated them. As the game wore on, I think, yes. it, you know, because you, you have that sort of, it's almost like an, a, a bounce, isn't it? <laughs> you settle into it. But as the game wears on and it becomes more stretched, that's when you really want the experience of knowing where to be and what situations are going to come. Yeah, and, and simply moving the team forward 15 metres, if that's what he did, um, and certainly the two central midfielders did play f- further up, it just stopped, uh, I, I keep coming back to him, Adam Forshaw getting the ball and looking up as, you know, he, he can't, he can't have had that much space. I mean, you don't get any space in school football. So this might have been the, the, the most alone he was on a football pitch ever in that first half. And at least they stopped that. Leeds were still a threat, by the way. And we they should, were. We should make the point that Lloris, um, and when we talk about, you know, uh, who's played well for Spurs this season, the goalkeeper has a rick in him like every goalkeeper. Again, he was called upon to keep Spurs in the game, wasn't he? It could have been 2-0 before Spurs got their equaliser. Yeah, easily. He made two good saves. I mean, I think they were both saves you'd expect a yes, keeper of his level uh, to make. Quite. But um, but yeah, I mean, they, they could easily have gone down. They could easily have gone down too now. All right, so they move up the pitch. Are there any discernible patterns to the play, James? I mean, we uh, we could see the goal coming because Spurs were starting to hit the woodwork uh, with alarming regularity. Not shots on target, don't forget, when you hit the woodwork. <laughs> For some bizarre... I mean, I never quite get that. That really is punishing the forwards, isn't it? Um did you know the goal was coming, James, the equaliser? It certainly felt like the game opened up. I mean, as Charlie says, you know, you, you move kind of forward players slightly higher up the pitch and obviously, you know, that, that is going to kind of cut two ways, isn't it? And uh, uh, Royale in particular, I felt like it was in the game far more in a positive sense in the second half. Um, and clearly that was quite a good out ball for them. What, what I noticed, and, and I could this could be kind of memory playing tricks, but I don't think it is. When Hoiberg scored his goal and I know that was kind of a second phase after that ball had gone in and and Lucas and Kane had both gone for it and then Lucas had kind of turned and played the ball back but I think Spurs had six players in the box and I just don't think there can have been too many occasions you know this was an open play it wasn't a set piece I don't think there could have been too many occasions in those however many hours it was four hours six hours whatever that Spurs have had six players in the opposition box I reckon probably none uh and, and I think that probably is quite telling that, that, you know, the second they suddenly start piling forward, they score two goals. And, you know, they were two quite fortunate goals. The, the Hoiberg finish was a bit sort of scruffy, wasn't it? I thought that had taken a deflection in, in the ground, but actually didn't, I don't think it did. It, it, it wasn't entirely convincing and it wasn't. It didn't feel like there was, uh, you know, you talk about patterns of play. There, there weren't loads of amazing passing moves that I noticed necessarily. Um, but they, they, there was an intent and there was an intensity and... I think when you've got the better players on the pitch, which I think we would probably say Spurs did, I think that's quite often going to be enough. The thing about pushing people into the penalty area has several things going for it. And you're right, it makes you vulnerable to a hit on the break. But let's look at the positives of it. Um, it does mean that you're going to get, um, by definition, the players have to look to find other players further up the pitch. But in a weird way, the more players are in the penalty area, the better it is for Harry Kane. Mm. It is not a coincidence that he found himself in the second half maybe four times one-on-one, not with the goalkeeper, there was one, with, but with his immediate marker. Whereas in the last year, he has found himself usually against three players in the penalty area. And so his physical strength gets him past the first and the other one takes the ball off him. And we've seen lots of examples of it. And, you know, with England, where they tend to get people forward, um, even allowing for the poor opposition who are playing in the last few days, 
it's counterintuitive. The more people who make make it into the penalty area, the more space he gets in an odd sort of way. And it really was clear that he was starting to get against Cooper, wasn't it? He was getting more yeah. one-on-ones and a chance to push Cooper to one side where there was no backup to him. And that's why I think he was looking a bit more more dangerous. No, I think that's a really good point. I, I also think more that one of the tactical tweaks with pushing Royale further forward, he was almost playing like a right winger and that allowed Mora to have what looked like a, a sort of freer role, a free role, um, which I'm sure was deliberate. I'm sure he wouldn't have just gone rogue. And he was able to kind of roam around in those front three positions. And that really helped as well because he sometimes, you know, and it's interesting because under Nuno that happened once or twice and it just looked completely unstructured and almost reckless. But here it, it did actually work quite well. And he created quite a lot of chances from from some quite different positions. I mean, he pops up to, for the assist for Hoybier. He pops up kind of, more inside left kind of channel um so i do think that did that did already help yeah his his running was very good on the day and uh, the beating of the first man uh, i don't think lucas necessarily bless him um has the best radar for the killer pass but i thought i, I mean i say it because you have to follow the evidence of your own eyes I, I thought he was maybe spurs best player on the day and and you know credit again conte rewards running and he runs a lot, and that's a that's a great start. The running stats, incidentally, I think showed that Spurs actually one of the problems in the first half was they weren't they just weren't running enough. Those running stats are pretty striking, really, to outrun Leeds by four kilometers. And you know, I think it's only the second time Leeds have been outrun this season, and we think of that that's what's synonymous with Bielsa's teams. And they they outrun them. They ran 112 kilometers. Spurs. Their average under Nuno was 100. That's a huge that's a massive increase. difference, isn't it? Huge. Yeah, and, and and you think how little time he's had with the players to already have overseen that kind of change is bodes really well. At the end, uh, having got themselves two one ahead, they had a little bit of defend too, but they were basically, I think it's fair to say, they were in control. The win, of course, um, when you're a mid-table team as Spurs currently are, any win in the Premier League is hard to get and welcome. So that was all very very good. One or two Chelsea and Arsenal fans of my in my direct circle in life. Um, chiding me because the Spurs fans were so happy at the end. But I make no apology for being delighted by that because although the, the first half of uh, performance appalled me, to come back and win shows... And there was nothing. There was nothing in the second half performance that made me think, aha, here comes the Conti revolution, James. But at least it had a bit of spirit about it, which, which we've been you know, really sadly and clearly lacking for, for several months now. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's quite impressive to go from, you know, what I described before as like a sort of sub-Nuno performance in the first half where it didn't look like they had any kind of motivation or desire or kind of belief that they could get anything from the game uh, to, to coming out in the second half. And like I said, playing with that intensity and that intent to, to drive up the pitch and to pen leads in. And like, as we say, you know, if I did give leads a few chances to strike us in the break, but in general, I thought it was a, it was a better performance. I mean, like, like you say, I mean, I don't think anyone's getting particularly carried away about the performance or even the result. No DVD, no up a top it is, bus. It's no. a very, a very marginal move in the right direction. No, the thing is, like, I, my piece to, off the game was about Conte's energy and the effect of that. You know, he's rousing the fans at the end and celebrated wildly at the final whistle. And yeah, cynic. You know, you can say you've just beaten you've just struggled to beat a team that came into the day fourth from bottom with a bunch of injuries but 
I, I likened it to that game early on in uh, Jurgen Klopp's time at Liverpool when they drew it home to West Brom and again, he got the players to kind of go and stand in the line and salute the crowd. And a lot of people mock that as well because they're saying you've just drawn it home to a pretty poor West Brom team. What, what on earth is there to celebrate? But the thing is, with at this stage when it's so early, even a manager as good as Conte or Klopp, you're not going to come in and with a few training sessions have them looking really coherent. You're playing a whole new system. It's a whole new way of operating. That's just not going to happen. So at this point, he can't, that, that energy and passion, as he talked about afterwards, and enthusiasm, which I know are dirty words for a lot of people in this country now, but that's kind of all he has at this point because there just isn't the time uh, between games to oversee the kind of changes he wants to oversee eventually in, in the space of a few weeks. And and, and and you're trying to generate something. And, and as you say, we've had so many, like the last two years basically have taken in the end of Pochettino, then Mourinho, then behind closed doors, then Nuno, like just, you know, there was, why not celebrate that kind of thing? It was, it was, it felt like a moment. Also that kind of like enthusiasm uh, and kind of commitment from the players in the games that they've got coming up actually could make quite a big difference. Yeah, massively. Because, you know, games against teams like Burnley and Brentford, say, which are the next two league games, those are exactly the kind of games where if your attitude is wrong mm. and you're not quote-unquote at it, you could drop points. But Spurs will have bet the better players again, as I said before. They'll have the better players on the pitch in those two games. And if they're, if they're reasonably well organised and if they're committed and they give, you know, 100%, <laughs> to use a cliche, they should win those games. Yeah. But- and, and I just think they're the games that otherwise you think, you know, in previous weeks that maybe you'd be worried about. Well, definitely. Especially as like, you know... <laughs> It's not as if we're in a position where we can be complacent about those games when Spurs, like most teams in the Premier League, have dropped points to those kinds of teams. We've seen if your attitude's not right, you'll get caught out. You know, like I always say with this, it's just because passion and attitude, just because they don't mean everything, that doesn't mean they don't mean anything. You know, they, they, they are still important. And if you've got a manager as good as Conte talking about the importance of them, then I think you take notice. And, and, and obviously, if Conte didn't have the tactical chops and this incredible ability to get his players fit, obviously on its own, just being really passionate isn't going to do enough. But he, he has all those things. So I think, you know, who isn't going to enjoy seeing their manager celebrate like that? It's about building something and making it seem like everyone cares and, and is in it together. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, I celebrated at the end as well, but for the, for, for the reason that, um, and I'm sure, Charlie, at some stage, um, you've written an 8,000-word piece about this, <laughs> the simple statistic um, that in the Premier League, the team that concedes the first goal um, is a, in 86% of games does not win the football match. The first goal is so great. Now, and if you take Manchester United's away form... Um, during the pandemic out there, it's probably 87%, something mad like that. The yeah. first goal is so critical. And so hats off to Spurs, not for the performance particularly, but for finding whatever combination of, of, of gumption and luck that they needed to get the result. And if that's a habit they could get into, that'd be a very handy habit to have. As we saw with Manchester United's amazing run away from home, where they kept on going behind mm. and defying the statistics. Let's take a break. Um, we, I think we probably picked the... If we pick any more bones um, out of the Leeds game, it will collapse <laughs> into a, heat of, a heap of gelatinous flesh, won't it? Um, so let's move on a little bit here on the View from the Lane podcast where you're listening. And I like to remind people in the style of old-fashioned radio presenters uh, to me, Danny Kelly, Charlie Eccleshare and Chase Moore. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes 
and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobeUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So what do you pick from the bones? You're not picking the bones out, are you? Pick the bones out, do you? Yeah, I think you pick the bones you're, out. You're picking the bones yeah. like a... Yeah, you are actually filleting the the, the chicken as yeah, you go yeah, along. Yeah. yeah, I was always thinking a bit like a vulture, like picking the. <laughs> oh, picking the bones clean. You mean? Okay. Yeah. We. I think that'll be one for another podcast when there's been a nil-nil yeah, we'll, we'll draw at Leicester. What are we picking yeah, yeah. here exactly? Okay, we talked about the game. Let's pivot from the good news of that to the rather less good news that Manchester United have sacked Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. A very decent bloke, by the way. Making jokes about him doesn't really mean I've got anything against him. He seems to me like a perfectly decent human being in a very difficult situation. Here's a question for you, James. I'll start with you. Do you think Antonio Conte wishes he'd hung on for three weeks? Um. (laughs) And I'm serious. That's a good question. Possibly. I mean, I I think from some of the things that you've written... Uh, on the Athletic in the last kind of couple of weeks that maybe Conte wouldn't have been Manchester United's first choice anyway and that they prefer Pochettino which uh, is another perhaps more difficult question for us to, to address and a bit weird um, given Conte's record over the past seven or eight years but go on well, yeah 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 perhaps he does yeah perhaps, perhaps he does I wouldn't be surprised I mean I, I, I don't necessarily you know Manchester United have a lot of problems too Uh some of them are quite similar to the problems that Tottenham have got, but I suppose the advantage they've got is they'll just throw an absolute shed load of money at it, whatever the problem is, uh, because they can do that. So, yeah, I would imagine, if we're being honest, he, he probably does think, mm, maybe I should have waited, but uh, I'm not sure that necessarily would have been the way it would have played out anyway. What do you think, Charlie? Uh, yeah, I mean, I reckon the way he's wired as well is to just be so focused on what he's doing that I don't think he'd even allow himself to really think about it too much you know he does seem fully invested in in what he's doing and I think he's just he's I think he's just so happy to be managing again I think like for all he talked about needing some time off I think he strikes me as the kind of guy who'd have a bit of time off and then feel very very restless very quickly so yeah I mean I I I think as well people hyper successful people like him probably don't dwell on things particularly so I imagine he'll he'll move on from it quite fast I'm not saying it's not a good job for a manager, but I do I do think it's quite a bad time to become manager of Manchester United. Like that Ronaldo issue, uh, like he like, does upset the balance. I don't care what I don't care what Rio Ferdinand or anyone else says. You know, it's it's like when Darren Bent played for Spurs, Danny. You know, he can score a few goals himself, but you need to set the whole team up to accommodate him. And you know, he's not he's not part of a team. He's separate from the Plus, team. Plus, and he won't mind me saying this because I said it to him on air because he's a colleague of mine over on the radio station that I work for. I mean, he's an Arsenal git, isn't he? And therefore, he was <laughs> he, he was upsetting the but Oh, he couldn't be more of an Arsenal supporter if he tried that fella. Um, actually, this, I wouldn't mind taking a couple of minutes here though to talk about uh, the. The effect of Manchester United changing manager, you know, Spurs changed manager and suddenly um, we're all saying, oh, there's an outside chance um, of finishing fourth. We can't finish higher than that because I suspect 
There haven't been three teams as brilliant as Chelsea, Manchester City and Liverpool in one league since, what, Spain 2014? When Atletico, Barcelona and Real Madrid all got 100 points a day? I mean, a really lot. It's, it, it's an extraordinary league. Not at that level, but the 98-99 title race, uh, the where United won the treble, Arsenal were off the back of winning the double. Yeah. And Chelsea had a brilliant team that, you know, picked up a heck of a lot of points that season. Um that, okay. that was a pretty good three-horse race as well. And this is the speed at which um, the planets are passing us in terms of a, a time passing. You know, you say 1998 there, that with a snap of your fingers, it's nearly a quarter of a century ago. Isn't that amazing? Listen, yeah. Um, so, but but we think the Spurs have got a chance of making the top four because Conte may transform them. Does Manchester United changing manager Charlie mean that they are now um, more serious proposition? You know, in two weeks' time, when, whenever whoever replaces Michael Carrick comes in, than they would have been if Ole had been left there. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think every fan of every team, you know, hoping to sneak into that top four, as cruel as it is, wanted Solskjaer to stay there as long as possible. I know a lot of people were annoyed at Watford for getting those third and fourth goals for kind of ruining everyone's fun. Um, <laughs> if it's in at 2-1, maybe, or certainly if, you know, United had got a creditable 2-2 draw. But, I mean, we've had a heck of a run. The, 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 how long that's been strung out for, for every other team, has been just a gift, really. Um, but you've got to think, I mean, with the squad they have, Ronaldo or no Ronaldo, I mean, that squad should be finishing fourth. This is a team that finished second last season that then added Varane, Sancho and Cristiano Ronaldo. So you'd think with anything approaching a manager, you know, of Conte's level or even a bit below, should be able to get that team fourth so it's definitely bad news for Spurs and the chasing pack there's a part of me and things are so weird at Manchester United that I'm not, I'm not counting this out there's a part of me that thinks you could solve two problems with one uh, with one stone and make Cristiano Ronaldo the interim manager he won the Euros as manager didn't he he did, and, and he looked very good and passionate as they did. Well, you know, we said that's the... all you need. They've got good players, yeah. Manchester United. That's obvious. So, yeah, he uh, could do that. Oh, so, yeah, you're right. That would solve uh, all their problems. It, they would get a famous manager who knows the club, which seems to be very important to them. Um, um, it, he's probably a better bloke than Laurent Blanc, judging by some of Laurent's outbursts in the, in the past. Um, and he might even... Um, recognise that the team functions a bit better if he's not on the pitch all the time uh, demanding the ball on the penalty spot. Just, just there's a no thought. Chance, there's no chance I was going to say, would he... That. Yeah, I don't imagine he'd be dropping himself. Or if he did, then kind of berating himself and looking really petulant. <laughs> he'd be bringing, puts the he'd team be bringing talker, back Nanny to do the running for him, wouldn't he? You know, you know to come back, Nans. You know, you, know you know the club. Come on back, son. Um, we'll have another quick break because um, the, I think the, the, the picking of... Uh, we're now back to what happens when you pick bones. The picking of the bones of other guys of Solskjaer is unseemly, as I say. Not a bad man, but of course... He knows it's a results business and you can't be losing 4-1 at Watford on the back of the two calamitous results they had against Liverpool and Manchester City. When I come back, the show is, by and large, capable of taking on the big issues. There's none more difficult to get through than what we're going to talk about next, and that is the use of the Y word by Spurs fans. (laughs) 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, look, we've had we've had um, a good bit of knockabout about Leeds and about Manchester United. I want to draw your attention to a piece that uh, Charlie, who's here with us today, and uh, Jack uh, wrote uh, in the weekend. Um, it was very long and it was very nuanced and it was very researched. And I, I want to congratulate um, James, I suppose, who was involved in the uh, in the getting together of the piece, and Charlie for writing it. Yeah, um, it was about um, an issue that. Uh, it's very difficult to talk about because you can't even use the word properly anymore. Um, and I myself have been uncomfortable with it for a long time, though I, I'm not going to lie. Um, Jermaine Defoe, he's a bleep O, has come across my lips. And the, the piece is arguing that the word is now anathema and is upsetting to a triggering of sections of Jewish people, not just in the, in the football grounds, uh, many of whom have become slightly newer to it. Now, there are all kinds of arguments here. Charlie, why don't you outline and lay out the arguments, that we, particularly the defense of the word, which I think um, people are very, very strong on defending Tottenham's fans' use of it. Um, although, as we'll come on to, I myself think that the time for change is long, is long overdue. Yeah, I mean, I should say, this is a piece I've wanted to write for a long time, and it took a lot of... Um interviews and research etc etc putting it together and and is a very delicate issue um and yeah it 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 was it's not an easy thing to put together and try and explain but the 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 sort of the defense for singing it is that um it was initially uh started up as a kind of badge of honor and a way to deflect the racist abuse that spurs received in the 1970s from supports of other clubs like Chelsea, Spurs has long had links with the Jewish community, uh, though that's also true of clubs like Arsenal, Leeds, uh, and Leeds. Yeah, who there was a great piece from my colleagues Phil Hay and Amitai Winehouse about that the Leeds and uh, Jewish relationship. Um, 
But anyway, so Spurs have been uh, identified though by other clubs as the as the Jewish club, and they, and they received a, a, a lot of anti-Semitic abuse. So to show solidarity, they self-identified as the Y word and would sing it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that still, you know, continues. But the Y word is a racial slur. It's you know not dissimilar from the P word or the N word, and you know clearly the idea of a bunch of fans who, and this is really important, about 5% of match-going Tottenham fans now are Jewish. So it's not really Tottenham fans' words to reclaim. It's it's quite inappropriate in the same way that if you had 95% of match-going fans were white, for them to be singing, identifying as the P-word army or the N-word army would mm-hmm. seem horrifically inappropriate. And should say at this point that there are a lot of Jewish Spurs fans who still really like the fact that they are called the Y word. They think it's uplifting. They think it's great that, um, you know, Jews are not only welcome there, um, but celebrated, you know, and, and, and for some in an age of rising antisemitism, that's even more important. Then there are uh, lots of uh, Jewish fans who feel i know rationally i shouldn't like it but actually for some reason it just doesn't bother me and and these are all completely legitimate viewpoints that's totally their prerogative the problem is there are also quite a lot of jewish fans uh who support tottenham who find it very uncomfortable hearing a racial slur being chanted even if it's being done in a benevolent way which you know i think for most tottenham fans it is it's still a word that for many of them uh, will have been used to them as a term of abuse. And, you know, they hear it every week from rival fans. Uh, you know, it's a word that was used in Nazi Germany. It was used by Oswald Mosley in his black shirts and daubed on the walls of the East End. It is a racial slur. But the most important thing, I think, that I took from the piece and talking to lots of people, especially from the Jewish community, is that actually this isn't really about Spurs fans. And that might seem strange, but really... If you stop and think about it, what's important here is what do the minority group, what do they think about it beyond Tottenham fans? Because this doesn't happen in isolation. Rival rival clubs have Jewish fans. We talked at Leeds on the weekend. How comfortable do they hear with, how comfortable do they feel with hearing this word? <laughs> These games are broadcast to millions of people. So for a lot of Jews, they are hearing this word being sung again and again and again and it's deeply uncomfortable and what really struck me was talking to lots of representatives from Jewish organisations and other members of the Jewish community outside of Tottenham the overwhelming majority not total and of course you can say well what you spoke to everyone of course I didn't and there are lots and lots of exceptions here but for a vast majority or at least a lot of people they find it deeply uncomfortable And I think they have to be the priority here. The minority group who this racial slur is being sung at, they are the priority. And if they really, really don't like it, which is the case for lots of them, they have to be listened to. And I'm sorry if for non-Jewish Spurs fans, that means not singing this word that you like and that you're familiar with. But I'm afraid that's not really the priority here. And And I just want to say as well, as part of this piece, we revealed that Spurs, we understand, are planning on, for pretty much the first time, asking their fans to at least assess the appropriateness of using this word. And I think that's an important first step. And I I think it is just a first step. And again, and you know, what's stressed in this piece is that it's not about dictating to fans. This has to be 
about having discussions, trying to make them aware, and, and hopefully as a fan base we can move forward. And th- that's, I think, um, is critical in the process, if there's going to be a process, because we know that football fans react very, very badly to being told what to do yeah. by their clubs. Um, and I also think there was, in the arguments I was having, not arguments, there were discussions I was having on Twitter about this once I put up uh, your piece, people don't want to be dictated to specifically by David Baddiel. Now, yep. look, I have some personal experience here. Um, he, I wouldn't call David a friend, but I've certainly had a drink with him in the Ivy Club, if you don't mind. Um, and uh, we have lots of mutual friends. But when he first started this campaign with his brother, uh, it was, I mean, it's 10 years ago now, um, I had the discussion with him on air. And I didn't fall out with him, but there was part of me as a person, I was just bridling at the idea that um, David would be telling me what I couldn't couldn't do as a Spurs fan. But, of course, he wasn't telling me as a Chelsea fan. He was telling me as a member of the Jewish community, um, something it took about five, ten minutes to get through my thick skull on the day. Um, James, you commissioned this piece. Um, you obviously think it's an important issue. Yeah, I do. I mean, like like you, I, I've... Uh, I- I wouldn't say necessarily I've changed my stance on this over the kind of last 20, 25 years of going to matches, but uh, I feel like my view and it has definitely evolved. Uh, I, I always remember that bit, it, like, it, it felt like a very different thing in the kind of mid-90s, early 2000s. It was like never addressed by the club. Uh, they would never acknowledge it. You know, you'd see, I remember the second or third game I went to seeing a guy with that word on the back of his shirt Right, uh, and not, not really understanding what it meant, and hearing people chanting it, and not really understanding what it meant, and only kind of finding that out later. Uh, and I remember my reaction to uh, that David Deal campaign, uh, similar to yours, but perhaps without the benefit of having a conversation with him. Yeah, uh, bristling at the idea of being told by a Chelsea fan of all people that, that this is what you should do. Because you know, I remember a game, and I've spoken to Charlie about this in the process of putting this piece together. Uh, and it's actually West Ham. You know, I've been to Chelsea away, and you know, you hear some pretty horrific things. But it's within the last decade, Spurs have played West Ham at White Hart Lane, and and I mean, probably thousands of West Ham fans have been singing songs, like gleefully singing about Adolf Hitler in that stadium. In I think the 2012, I think that was, and I think they got charged by the FA. And then the next time West Ham came to Spurs, they kind of whistled or hummed the same tune, and thought it was all very clever and very funny that they'd got away. You know, they were reminding us of it, but. But uh, they were still, you know, they weren't actually saying the word. Um, well, you know, that is, that is crazy when you think about it. You know, you're talking about within the last 10 years, f- f- thousands of football fans have been singing broadly positively about Adolf Hitler, e- even if it's, you know, quite, quite only a joke. Absolutely. That's absolutely crazy. It, it's, not for, it's not for you or I, Danny, to say that, that, that this is the suitable defence. You know, we, we, can't, we shouldn't be taking that word and... Uh, kind of foisting it on other people, um, and it's you know it's so complicated because as you say there are there are Jewish look, people in our look, families it, who do think it's and fine. and it, it, it people the people who who say we are doing it as a defence of the Jewish community from the anti-Semitism coming from other fans, you know if we're going to go into that historical thing, well let's go back and a layer before that. As a, a younger man, I was a member of an organisation now forgotten, I think, called Spurs Against the Nazis where Spurs fans had to organise in the late 70s against people, Spurs fans, doing Hitler salutes in the ground in appreciation of this, that and the other. 
Um, so about the same time as Rock Against Racism was doing this in the music industry, there were Spurs had there was an organization called Spurs Against the Nazis. Imagine such a thing having to be so the the, the nuances and the change in what people think about these things they they alter all the time. And the only thing I would say, um, and I, I take I mean, the, the, the thing that jumped off the page for me, and of course I've read David Baddiel's book, Jews Don't Count Since as well, and it's a brilliant book. If you want to understand the Excellent issues, book. if you want to understand the issues, not necessarily the answers, but the issues, and, you, and David doesn't speak for all Jewish people either, I get, I get that. But you're right to say that if, if we were supporting a club the Washington Redskins have had exactly the same problem mm-hmm. where, of, of a cultural inappropriateness. For whatever historical reasons, had used the N-word or the P-word to positively display themselves, we wouldn't do it now. And here's the crux for those people arguing with me about but we were doing it for the following positive reasons. We, as Spurs supporters, can do nothing about what the Chelsea fans do mm-hmm. or the West Ham fans do or any other club. What we can do by a small change in behaviour and stopping using the Y-word is we can contribute to improving the atmosphere around football matches which Spurs are involved in for Jewish fans of Spurs, Jewish fans of the opposition, and for the wider community. And don't forget, we do we could do that, safe in the knowledge that we already have one fantastic nickname, um, which we all use all the time, which is Spurs. You don't need mm. another nickname. Um, you know, which you can't get on, on club memorabilia and all the rest of it. We could make a very positive contribution here. Also, by the way, if Spurs, if Spurs stop calling themselves that word, like you, you take away this kind of mealy-mouthed excuse that you'll often see, like you'll see this a lot on Twitter, like, oh, they call themselves that, so, you know, I, I can call them that. From You know, when in, in the middle yeah, of a from, derogatory from, comment from, from a fan of another yeah. team. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Dimwits, yeah. But you're completely taking... I don't think that is a grey area, but you completely take away that grey area of Spurs fans stop calling themselves that. Exactly. And I think like speaking to Badil for this, I mean, I really wanted to speak to him. I think he's a really important voice in it. And I get that, you know, for a lot of fans, he's a Chelsea fan. But as you say, Danny, spot on. He is a member of the Jewish community, first and foremost. That's what matters here. But also when people say they are doing it as as a, a show of solidarity with the Jewish community, well... The message from the Jewish community, if you want to listen, is that what would really be a solidari- message of solidarity would be to stop singing. So if you do care about that, if, you, if, if you're saying that in good faith, the message, it's not a consensus. Of course it's not. As I say, there are a lot of Jewish fans of Spurs who, who love it being sung. But the consensus or, or you know, the, the, the majority held view is that it would be really, really appreciated if it was stopped because it is a racial slur. And the, the reality is, and again, it's something I spoke about with, with David Baddiel, there is this blame game. What happens is fans get very defensive. And so a lot. what, what I often hear is, how can you get at us for singing the Y word when we're doing it benevolently? Get at Chelsea for singing about the Holocaust. Now, the, the thing is, no one is saying that singing the Y word benevolently or with that intention is worse than Chelsea singing about the Holocaust. Of course, Chelsea singing about the Holocaust is a million times worse. But there are two things here. One, sadly, the way football chanting works is there is that call and response. So when one sets of fans sing one's things, inevitably there's a response to something else. And so what you often have is, unfortunately, Y word is sung, then there's that response. And as James says... There's this feeling that you're almost legitimizing it and you're licensing it. But really, the thing that matters is all Spurs can do, all they can control is what they do as supporters. That's all they can do. So they do the right thing. 
if, if you're if you're worried about you know showing solidarity to the Jewish community, do the right thing yourself, and then let Chelsea let them deal with it. And to be fair to them, they have tried, they have done a hell of a lot of work about anti-Semitism as well. But that's their issue. Focus on what you can do. That's that's the only thing you can do, and that that's how we move forward. Yeah, and I, I don't think I, I, I want to add to that. That is exactly right. Well done, both of you, uh, for that piece. And I do understand it is a terribly sensitive issue, but, you know, never mind for the Jewish community, but for Spurs fans who've been believing maybe in good faith, as Charlie says, that they've been doing the right thing for years and years and years. Don't forget, but everything changes all the time. Um, and as I say, we have got at least one and two with Lily White's great nicknames, which we can latch on to, write songs about and all the rest of it. Listen, thank you very much indeed, both of you, for that. Remember that to celebrate Black Friday, you can take advantage of our best deal of the year. You can now subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of just £1 a month for a full 12 months. But hurry, the offer runs out at midnight on Sunday, November the 28th. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Let me say that again, theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review there. If you're not enjoying the show, throw your keyboard out the window. Thank you very much indeed. We'll be back, um, of course, on Thursday when we'll have another View from the Lane. The Athletic.